You're listening to RTE Lyric Live. And music, images and phrases, brush strokes and notes. On the face of it, the two forms are quite separate things. Fine art's often about representing a fully formed picture as an object to be admired and reflected on. Whereas classical music is a dynamic, performative force. It relies on taking a musical score, possibly written down long ago by a dead composer, and bringing it to life in the concert hall for today's audience. But what interests me tonight is the way those two worlds intersect and how and why certain composers have turned to the world of art and used it as a shot in the arm. We'll be coming to the sound worlds of Italian composer Ottorino Respighi and German Paul Hindemith later on. But the music of Claude Debussy does seem like an obvious place to start. We've just heard an extract from La Mer, his symphonic description of the sea. And that amazingly atmospheric work first gets a mention in a letter that Debussy wrote to a fellow composer, André Messager, in September 1903, and saw its first performance just over two years later at a concert of the Concert L'Amoureux in Paris. What I think's fascinating about La Mer is that it's a perfect mix of Debussy's originality as a composer, it reflects his own passionate response to the sea and the impact on his life, and it draws on the work of visual artists that Debussy admired. As a young man, Debussy had been someone who lived and breathed music. Initially growing up in Cannes on the French Riviera, his mother sent him to Paris to build in the remarkable natural ability as a musician by enrolling him in the famous conservatoire there. In fact, he never had any proper schooling at all, just the Paris Conservatoire's rigorous musical training. But his antennae were on full alert well beyond the confines of French academic tuition. He did the Wagner thing by travelling to Bayreuth and absorbed himself in the ring cycle. He got to know the sound of the Javanese gamelan at the Universal Exposition in Paris in 1889 and forged a new kind of musical language for his country fit for the turn of the 20th century. But if he hadn't gone down the musical route, he might well have been a sailor. That's what his father had in mind for him, because he'd been at sea himself for seven years. Debussy certainly had a fair few experiences of the sea at its most malign, including the time he and his friends almost drowned in a violent storm off the coast of Brittany when he was in his late twenties. He had that experience in common with the great English artist who he very much admired, Turner, who'd gone to sea in a ferocious gale in 1842 and asked the crew to lash him to the mast so that he could see the storm without being swept away, which he just about managed. Debussy loved Turner, and also the Japanese artist Hokusai. Debussy chose a print of his painting The Great Waves as the cover art for this very piece. So La Mer is flooded, you might say, with links between music and art. And in a letter to his stepson Raoul Bardac, 
Debussy even emphasised the advantages of his art form over the other. Music has this over painting, he wrote. It can bring together all manner of variations of colour and light. The second movement of La Mer, a musical description of waves playing, is a great example of that. Je de Vague from Debussy's La Mer, probably the most impressionistic piece he ever wrote. Just like a painting in sound, and it's the composer who has the brush in his hand. What though if the link between music and art works the other way around, with the masterpiece of fine art coming first, with the composer's reaction to it following along afterwards? That's the approach that Ottorino Respighi took in his Botticellian triptych of 1927. He'd been born in Bologna in 1879 and went on to die in Rome in 1936. And as far as leading Italian composers of the early 20th century go, he was right up there with the likes of Puccini. But Respighi was unusual in that he wasn't primarily an opera composer. Writing colourful and atmospheric music for orchestra was really his thing. Five months of private study with the great Rimsky-Korsakov over in St. Petersburg certainly left its mark in that regard. And another hallmark of Respighi's music is a nostalgic passion for the past. Musically speaking, there were his ancient airs and dances, and the birds, a fluttering tribute to the Baroque era, and more generally, there were his atmospheric scores based on the episodes from the good old days when Italian cultural history really was something to be proud of. At the noisy end of the scale, you have the fountains, pines and festivals of Rome, dazzling orchestral masterpieces for huge, brassy forces. And at a more delicate level, there's the beautiful Botticelli triptych, 
evoking in music three 15th-century masterpieces by Sandro Botticelli from the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, Spring, The Adoration of the Magi, and The Birth of Venus. Dwelling on the glory days of the past was never as straightforward as it might seem in the unstable era of Italy in the 20s. With the spirit of fascism very much in the air, it's no surprise that Respighi would have been quite the hit with the Italian fascist party. Mussolini loved Respighi's music, but unlike lots of his colleagues, Respighi didn't go out of his way to butter up the fascist party. Maybe because he was so popular, he didn't need to. Well, leaving that political backdrop to one side, if we can, let's turn to the music to hear what Respighi took from Botticelli's famous Birth of Venus. You know the one. It shows the goddess elegantly floating ashore while standing on a giant scallop shell. An early version of going surfing, perhaps? The musical response is scored for a restrained band of just single wind and brass instruments with strings. And to that, Respighi adds a top dressing of triangle, bells, celeste, harp and piano, just to sprinkle a little magical fairy dust on proceedings. An exquisite moment from Respighi's Birth of Venus, inspired by Botticelli. On, finally, to another work in which music of the early 20th century is inspired by the art of long ago. Although in the case of Paul Hindemith, 
His retreat into the fine art of the past wasn't an escape, but a validation of his own creative life when danger was swirling all around. He was an odd one, Paul Hindemith, a brilliantly talented and hard-working string player who composed in all sorts of styles throughout the 1920s and taught composition at the Berlin Musikhochschule. He was scarily demanding of his pupils, who were generally just a few years younger than he was. What Hindemith rammed home to them was how to go about the craft of composition, respecting the medium of the notes. As he used to say, there are only 12 notes in the scale and they need to be treated carefully. So all was going well for Hindemith in 1932 when his publisher friend Willy Strecker suggested that he might like to write an opera based on the life of a German Renaissance painter, Matthias Grunewald. At first, Hindemith wasn't grabbed by the idea. But the events of the following year changed all that. Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany and under the new regime, Hindemith learned that half of his music had been banned for displaying something called cultural Bolshevism. Hindemith's wife was Jewish, and he had several Jewish friends and colleagues, so he was singled out in a speech by the propaganda minister Goebbels as drastic confirmation of how deeply the Jewish intellectual infection has eaten into the body of our own people. Now Hindemith was really in trouble. No longer was it possible for an artist to ignore what was happening around him, and the life of Matthias Grunewald suddenly seemed much more relevant. He had lived at the time of the Peasants' War in Germany in the 1520s, when serfs revolted against their feudal lords. Hindemith wrote a symphony and then an opera, both called Matis da Mala, inspired by Grunewald's famous paintings for the altar of the Abbey at Isenheim in Alsace. In the opera, Grunewald decides that he can't continue his comfortable life as a court painter while the peasants' struggle for justice is exploding around him. He joins their revolt, only to be repelled by their violence. While taking refuge in the forest, he dreams that he is St Anthony, subject to two of the Isenheim altarpiece paintings. In a scene based on one of those panels, St. Paul the Hermit tells him that it was wrong to turn his back on his God-given artistic gifts. In times of whatever strife outside, an artist's responsibility lies with his or her art. And that remained true in Germany, whether during the Peasants' War of the 1520s or the dark days of the 1930s. Grunewald's altarpiece is more than just decorative... And similarly, Hindemith's music doesn't just illustrate it. There's a message at the heart of both the altar paintings and Matis der Mahler, which is nothing less than a matter of life and death.
You're listening to RTE Lyric Live.